Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. So I'd like to invite Alex Guptill to come up here. Where's that? There you are, Alex. Come on up here. You're going to give me a hand this morning. I'm really glad that you're here, willing to be a part of this. How are you this morning? Good. You doing well? Yeah. Very good. You happy for this time of the year? Yeah. Why do you like this time of the year? Because there's snow on the mountains. <laughs> snow on the mountains. Yeah, Very it's good. it's a little colder. You like Thanksgiving? Yeah. Christmas? Yeah. What do you like about Christmas? I like Christmas just because it's, it's a nice time of the year. It's a nice time of the year. That's a good reason to like Christmas. Anything else about Christmas? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> You're a good young man here, Alex. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that rolls around at Christmas time of the year that's exciting is we have a lot of family that comes to visit us. You do as well, right? That's always nice. You hear the beautiful music like we heard this morning? Yeah. You see the decorations? That's very nice. You have decorations at home? Or you're going to? Yeah. Going going to. to, All right. Very good. And what about what appears under the tree? Uh, Presents. Presents. Oh, okay. Do you like presents? Yeah. Very good. Well, I have a present I'm going to give you in just a minute, Alex. I'm glad you're, you were willing to come up here to get this present. But first of all, I have to ask you a question. Do you, do you know what the name of this sermon series is? No. Don't worry, they don't either. So we're all on the same page together. So the name of this sermon series has to do with something called re-gifting. Do you have any idea what re-gifting is? Maybe not. Maybe not? So re-gifting, I looked it up. It's giving somebody else a gift that you got that maybe you're not as wild and crazy about. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to get you a gift here. Just You can stay right there, and I'll bring it back over here to you. So we went out, and actually I didn't go out, but Christian Leukert did. We appreciate what he did. He went out, and he got you a gift today. This This is a nice gift, I'll have to tell you. So I have good news and I have other news. (laughs) Okay, the good news is this is yours. Okay. You can take it home. You can open it. You can play with it. It's yours. Okay. Is that good? Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you open it then, and then I'll give you the other news. Is that a deal? Okay. All right. So there it is. Let's let's see. I'll help you hold the paper here if you need me to. I'll help you hold the paper, and we'll find out what's in there. Whoa, that's a nice gift. Do you know what that is? No. (laughs) All right, well, let's hold this up here. This is a Nintendo Switch. Wow. You go, Christian. You can't even hold everything that's in there. 
That's wonderful. So this is, this is a game where you can play races and other things. You put it on a TV screen, and you can beat your parents and all of those good kinds of things. And you have your control switches there and the game to play there. That's a pretty nice gift, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this is yours to take home, yours to play with. That's the first part of the news. You good? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to set this you. down in here. Well, you're very welcome, but wait to thank me for a minute here. Um, I'm going to put the paper back in it. So here's the other part of the news, Alex. You know that title of that sermon series, Regifting? Remember that? No. You don't know? <laughs> I forgot that title. <laughs> Well, here's what deal we're going to make, because regifting means you give to somebody else what was given to you. Yeah. All right, so this is yours. You can take it home. But next week, next Sabbath, at the same time, right here in this same place, we'll meet again. Okay. And you bring a gift to give to someone else who's going to come up next week. Okay? Okay? <laughs> now, it can be that gift. Or it can be any other gift. You need to decide what that will be. Okay. Is that a deal? Yeah. So you'll meet me right here next week? Yeah. All right, Alex. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thank you. So that term, re-gifting, I looked it up. It was either coined or popularized. There's some disagreement about that by that hit show back in the 90s called Seinfeld. They either coined it or at least popularized it, and it was the concept of just what we said here, of passing on, of giving on to someone else, a gift that would be really good for them, but maybe not so much for yourself. Now, it may have come about in the 90s, but I was actually introduced to that concept, concept well before that, about 10 years before that. I had a friend who lived here in Southern California. Anita and I had the same friend at the time. His name was Jim Bunch. And Jim finished up an academic program he was involved in at UCLA, and it was time for him to move back east. Well, you know what it is, what it's like when you pack. You, you pack all the big stuff and then the small stuff, and then you have stuff left, stuff that you don't really want to take but is too good to throw out. You know what I'm talking about? This was in the days well before Relive Thrift Store, so there wasn't a place to take that stuff. And so Jim gathered up what he had, and he went down to Kmart, and he put it back on the shelves at Kmart, just throughout the store, stuff on their shelves. And I, and I thought, what in the world? I mean, I've heard of getting arrested for shoplifting. Can you get arrested for shop giving? <laughs> I could just picture a confused checker standing at the stand looking at something saying, where did you get this? To a confused shopper. Well, it was back there on aisle six. We don't sell this here. Well, it was back there. Regifting to the store. We also visited them one time. We got home, opened our suitcase, and there were several regifts in our bags that we didn't want either, so we passed them on. So I knew this term well before the mid-90s. And I'm guessing that some of you know the term. In fact, I'm guessing some of you have actively participated in this experience. So I'm going to ask you, honesty time now, you're in church, honesty time, if you have ever re-gifted something, something that was given to you, something that you didn't really want, if you've ever re-gifted that to someone, 
Let me see you raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. We're a bunch of re-gifters in here. That's amazing. Okay, one more question for you. This time, I want to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. I see you looking. This is church. Close your eyes. Now, while every eye is closed and every head bowed, I have one other question. How many of you are planning to re-gift something this? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. To re-gift something this year. Let me see your hands. Oh, my goodness. Okay, quick, your hands down before anyone opens their eyes. There were hands all over this place. We're a good re-gifting community. I got to thinking about that, and it struck me that this thing called the discipleship journey is based on re-gifting. If we don't learn to re-gift, we will be stymied and stalled in our discipleship journey with Jesus. But there is a key difference. You see, in popular culture, re-gifting is that when you open this gift and you don't like it, and you say, well, I'll just wrap this back up and pass it on at the office Christmas party. It's something that you don't want. But what if the twist in the discipleship journey with Jesus is that the re-gifting is done with the very best gifts we've ever received? That's the discipleship journey. And that's our focus in this five-week Advent series called The Sophisticated and Classy Art of Regifting. Now, we're going to build this series, this structure, around two key pillars. So pillar number one right over here is a pillar that comes from Acts 20. It comes from a time when Paul is talking to his Ephesian elders He's saying goodbye to them. This will be the last goodbye. So as you can imagine, there were tears that were flowing as they realized we'll never see our leader again. And Paul is exhorting them. He's giving them encouragement. Right before they kneel to pray, Paul says to them, don't forget the words of Jesus. And then he quotes some words that we don't find in the Gospels, but he says, these are the words of Jesus who said to us, it's better to give than to receive. So that's our first pillar for this series. It's better to give than to receive. Our second pillar comes from Matthew 10. This comes in the context of Jesus sending out his disciples on a mission of ministry. It's an important mission they're going to have. And so he has enumerated his list of instructions and guidance and directions. And then he has empowered them. And he has said, now go. You have all of this that I have given you. And then comes his line, freely you have received, freely give. That's our second pillar. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Freely you have received, freely give. So those are our two pillars to construct the edifice of this series, entitled simply The Sophisticated and Classy Art of Regifting. So we're going to read the Christmas story in a moment from Luke's Gospel, the second chapter. We're going to go back and reread those familiar and yet profound words. But before reading them, I want to read you three paragraphs, just three paragraphs, from the eminent British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Because N.T. Wright helps set the stage for what was happening there in Bethlehem. 
in that event that was unnoticed by the world, captured at that first moment in time, time merely by the shepherds, that which would have no future consequence, we think. N.T. Wright sets the stage for what's actually happening. So these are Wright's words. He says, Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he overpowered all rival claimants. The last to be destroyed was the famous Mark Antony, who committed suicide not long after his defeat at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into an empire with himself at the head. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world and declaring his dead adoptive father to be divine, styled himself as a son of God. Poets wrote songs about the new era that had begun. Historians told the long story of Rome's rise to greatness, reaching its climax, obviously, with Augustus himself. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king, its lord. Increasingly, in the eastern part of his empire, people worshipped him, too, as a god. Meanwhile, far away, on that same eastern frontier, a boy was born who would, within a generation, be hailed as son of God, whose followers would speak of him as Savior and Lord, whose arrival, they thought, had brought true justice and peace to the world. Jesus never stood before a Roman emperor, but at the climax of Luke's gospel, he stood before his representative, the governor, Pontius Pilate. Luke certainly has that scene in mind as he tells his tale, how the emperor in Rome decides to take a census of his whole wide domain, and how this census brings Jesus to be born in the town which was linked to King David himself. The point Luke is making is clear. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all its apparent weakness and significance and vulnerability and the kingdoms of the world. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. Within just over three centuries, the Roman emperor himself became a Christian. When you see the manger on a card or in church, don't stop at the crib. See what it's pointing to. It's pointing to the explosive truth that the baby lying there is already being spoken of as the true king of the world. The rest of Luke's story, both in the gospel and later on in Acts, will tell how he comes into his kingdom. So when we pause and linger with Luke's account, with the shepherds, with the angels, with the child in a manger. We, looking from this perspective, can see the impact it has had. But they, at that moment in time, must have wondered, where's the world? If this is an important birth, where are the dignitaries? If this will divide history in two, where are the key men and women of the realm, of the domain, of the empire itself? None of them are to be seen. Just a few shepherds who came from listening to the angels. So we're going to read the story. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Read it again. It's a familiar story. 
We'll begin in verse 8, but I want to ask you to do me a favor. As we read, you will see on the screen that certain words are bolded and underlined. That's because those are the words I want you to especially notice because our focus today is on the reaction of the shepherds to this joyful news they have heard. Their very hearts must have beat with joy at what they had just encountered. So notice what they do. Luke 2, starting with verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. News of great joy. The joy must have known no bounds in their heart. If this indeed was the long-promised Messiah, then joy was the only appropriate response, the only way to respond. I think, actually, that joy just may be the very first gift of Christmas. When the announcement is made, a news of great joy to all the people, the joy that the shepherds felt, the joy that others would feel as they heard the news, just may be the first present we receive in the presence of this Messiah, joy. Now notice what the shepherds did. You saw it in the underlined words. They hear the news. They go to Bethlehem. They see the child and no doubt worship the child. Then they say, we've got to go tell people. They go and they spread the news. And then at the very end of the passage, Luke says, and they continued glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. In other words, they experienced even greater joy as they told the tale. Joy. Maybe the first gift of Christmas. Isn't it the gift that you wish would last all year? I know I find myself at times when driving around and seeing the lights going up on the houses, listening to the Christmas music on the radio, experiencing the anticipation of family and friends gathering around the table. There's that sense that says, I wish all year had this same sense of depth and joy and pleasure. We want it to last, not to wear off. 
And we find a way to do that right here in the story of the shepherds. Because what they did is something we find happening through the entire gospel narrative. They saw, they went and they saw, they experienced. Then they left and they went out and told everyone else about it. And as they did that, their joy increased. You find that over and again in the gospel account. Just one example is the resurrection story. Early morning on that first day of the week, Matthew tells us, the women slipped out of their homes and made their way to the tomb ready to care for the dead body of their master. And instead, they encounter an open tomb, an empty tomb, and an angel that says to them, come see and then go tell. Come see where the Lord lay and then go tell his disciples that he's not here, he's risen. Come see, go tell. It's exactly what the shepherds did here. They came, they saw, they went, they told. And then they experienced greater joy. It's a natural reaction. When you get a nice gift, like Alex got here this morning, one of the first inclinations you have is, oh, I got to tell. And then fill in the blanks of the people that are important in your life. I've got to go tell. In fact, the people that Jesus healed at certain points, he told them not to tell. Scholars call it the messianic secret. He was trying to keep things contained so the Roman government wouldn't respond and cut short his ministry. So he would heal somebody's blind eyes or give somebody the power to walk, and then he would say to them, shh, don't tell anyone, shh. And what did they do? They went out and they told everyone. They couldn't get out of there fast enough to tell everyone. They just couldn't contain it for the joy. And in the telling of it, no doubt the joy became even more intense. Joy may be the first gift of Christmas. It's the gift we wish would last. So let's learn a lesson from the shepherds. What the shepherds and many others in the gospel account found was this. If you want to keep it, you got to give it away. That's the only way to truly keep it. If you wish to keep the joy of Christmas, you have to re-gift it. Because the more you try to contain it, just like Christian told the kiddos this morning, and you hold it, and pretty soon it starts to hurt and to damage you, and all the enjoyment is gone. If you want to keep the joy of Christmas, you've got to give it away. Now, maybe you say it hearing that. But Randy, I'm not a, I'm not a religious professional like you are. I'm not a pastor, not a preacher. I don't know how to do that. Well, the first place to start is maybe with the shepherds, although that's a bit overwhelming for some, very honestly, including me. Because what the shepherds did is they ran out and they just bubbled out all over everyone. Some of you will do that naturally by temperament. You'll need no instruction. You just go out and share spontaneously. And the rest of us, feeling a bit diminished, we say, but that's not natural with me. 
How do I re-gift it in a way that might be part of who I am? The late Lewis Smeads, professor of theology and ethics down the road at Fuller Seminary for many years, writes about something that might be instructive. Listen to Smeads' words. He writes about when he began to find that joy within himself, gift of Jesus. The first class of the first day of my first semester was English composition. English comp. The teacher was Jacob Vandenbosch. He introduced me that day to a God the likes of whom I had never even heard about. A God who liked elegant sentences and was offended by dangling modifiers. Once you believe this, where can you stop? If the maker of the universe admired words well put together, think of how he must love sound thought well put together. If he loved sound thinking, how he must love a Bach concerto. If he loved a Bach concerto, think of how he prized any human effort to bring a foretaste, be it ever so small, of his kingdom of justice and peace and happiness to the victimized people of the world. In short, I met the maker of the universe who loved the world he made and was dedicated to its redemption. I found the joy of the Lord, not at prayer meeting, but in English composition. That's the kind of God that takes joy in things like that, in a job well done. I think God took joy in what happened here this morning. Still, 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 sang the choir while the flutes played. God took joy. It gave me joy. Chemo on the piano, Jim Lee on the cello. Oh, my goodness. The beauty, the joy. Just like Smeed says, it brings great joy. Maybe the way you share the joy is something that is unique to you. Doctor, maybe it means you sit in a patient's room. You can see it all over her face. The fear, the dread with what you have just said. And you allow her some space to process a bit of that. And then you say to her, you know, when I have gone through dark times, and I have, something that has brought me peace has been when somebody has prayed for me. If you wish, I'll take your hand and we'll pray. When she opens her eyes and you see just a bit of relief you sense that warm glow in your own heart? There's a word for that. The word is joy. Because joy is not happiness. You don't get joy at a comedy club or when everything goes your way. You get joy when God shows up. In a manger. In a hospital room. Do it with the way that He has given you to do it. 
Could be you, teacher, in the classroom, watching the trajectory of that student's grades over the quarter heading downhill. Asking that student, could I talk to you after class? What's wrong? You're a good student. I see your grade. And the whole story tumbles out. And you listen. And you do something that happened at Bethlehem. The love of God is incarnated, takes on flesh in you. And you say to the student, I can't imagine going through that, but if you want to get through this quarter, let's keep meeting. I'll do anything I can to help you. And I'll pray for you. That look of relief. Scripture has a word for that. It's joy. You don't get joy from a funny joke. You get joy when God shows up. That's where joy comes. Do you want to keep the joy of Christmas? Then give it away. Because is it only in re-gifting that we keep what we were given? It's just recently, not too long ago, I sat again in my office, sat again listening to a story, a sad, difficult story. It's been a privilege, been an honor to do that over the years. Watch the hands shake, the tears flow. This individual talked and I listened and gave some feedback and talked and I listened, gave some feedback. As we came to the end of the time together, I was going to ask about one more thing and then I wanted to offer prayer together. But I think this particular individual thought maybe, maybe the session is ending right now. And so as I was about to speak, they jumped in ahead of me and said, oh please, before we end, can you please pray for me? I said, absolutely. Wish I'd have thought of that myself. <laughs> and so we prayed. Gracious God, heal the hurt. Be present in the loneliness. Open the future to hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. I can't tell you what this individual felt. They would have to speak for themselves. But I think I detected some relief at amen. Some sense that God showed up. Scripture has a word for that. It's joy. But do you know what I do know? What I do know is that after that person left the office and I sat back down at my desk, there was a glow in my heart. Not over the pain I had heard. There was sadness for that. But over that moment when Bethlehem happened in my office. There's a word for that glow that one feels. And that word is joy. So you come to worship this morning. It's the beginning of the season. We see the decorations go up. 
You'll begin to hear the carols play. The warmth of the season will soon envelop you. And you may discover that joy might be God's first gift to you. And you'll receive it with joy. But also maybe with that bittersweet, rec bittersweet recognition I have often had. And that is to say, oh, I wish, I wish this could last forever. Well, the shepherds tell you something. They tell you the only way to keep the joy of Christmas is to give it away. The only way to enjoy the gift is to re-gift it. So for that reason, I want to tell you the real news of the season, and you can decide what to do with it. The true news of this season is simply this. Joy to the world. The Lord has come.